Welcome to Behind the Edit, a podcast that peeks behind the scenes and discusses the unexpected and often very personal victories, stumbles and detours on a path to building a creative brand and business. I'm your host, Christine Mankies, creative pioneer, award-winning photographer, founder of The Pretty Blog, editor, visual storyteller, problem solver, recovering workaholic, mom, and dynamic dot connector. Over the next few months, I'll be sitting down with South African multifaceted designers and entrepreneurs to uncover their unique and at times zigzag journeys to build what seems like a perfectly edited brand. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming a very bold and brave South African female designer, Catherine Mary Pischelik. Playing around with utility rope, more commonly known in industrial environments, Kat, as many call her, is fearless in a pursuit to create jewelry that empowers women. In true behind-the-edit style, as a qualified patisserie and BA Fine Arts graduate from the Michaelis School of Fine Art at the University of Cape Town, Kat had an unconventional journey to founding Pischelik, her jewelry and accessories studio based in Cape Town, South Africa. Over the years, she and her pan-African team have created exquisitely crafted wearable art, rooted in Africa, but loved globally. Her incredible pieces have dawned the attention of numerous international trend leaders and adorned shelves of well-known luxury retail and museum stores, including Tate Modern, MoMA, Bloomingdale's and Selfridges. She was also recently featured in Vogue Italia, which in itself is a noteworthy achievement. With all Catherine Mary has achieved, it's sometimes hard to believe that it all started around her kitchen table back in 2013. Okay, Kat, welcome to Behind the Edit. Especially as a minimalist, I'm very inspired by your boldness, your color usage, and your fun personality. I remember the first time I heard you speak at, I think it was 2015, at Business of Design, the conference. Yes. And before that, I came across your brand and I've been following it on platforms, but it was the first time I saw you speaking. And for me as an entrepreneur, I thought this woman has what it takes. So I'm very curious to know what your take is on as a creative, I don't think we're very well known as business people and mm. we don't necessarily start with all the business skills. So this business meets creative. How did you approach that? If we had to go back to Kat in her mid-twenties, <laughs> what did that look like? From the beginning, I've always brought design thinking to the way that I do business. I studied fine arts and then I also did a pastry chefing diploma and both of those are very process-driven. So if you're baking, you know what it is. It's limited materials going through a step-by-step -step process. You're looking at consistency and you're looking at an output. And they're actually quite sculptural, if you think about it from a pastry chefing. You know, people said the early pieces looked a lot like kind of strudels and they had that sort of patisserie element to them. When I've approached business from the nascent, it's always been around what are the possibilities? What are the opportunities? When a challenge arises, like what do I have in my arsenal that already exists that I can rethink? So I guess my entrepreneurship is also a style that is incredibly connected to the way that I design. I don't see them as dissimilar. As I'm a designer, I think I'm also a businesswoman, sometimes to my shortfall, but sometimes to my benefit. So it's like having a toolkit, basically, and you yes. draw from that toolkit. 
Yes. From the outset, I find it fascinating that you came from a patisserie background, mm. <laughs> now in jewellery. Let's first go into how you went from patisserie to jewellery. Just give us a bit of background into that. I graduated from Michaela School of Fine Arts, majoring in printmaking. Then I had a brief stint in word of mouth marketing, like at a place <laughs> called, um, what's it, Have You Heard? For like four or five months. And then I did my pastry chefing diploma simultaneously, moved to London, did an internship at Art Review, which is an art journal based in Clerkenwell, and then simultaneously was working in a bakery in Brixton. Saved up money and then traveled working on organic farms through Spain, traveled India, returned home, broke, quite lost, disheartened by the food industry, feeling like I definitely, you know, 3 a.m., 4 a.m., it's not my story, and it's not as quaint and French provincial village that I... <laughs> as cute and pretty. <laughs> as I thought it was going to be. It was actually quite industrial and quite in physically intense. So then I started my first website, Pishlik, and it was food, words, and jewellery. And I was selling food at a market. I was writing articles, and then I was playing with jewellery at night. Jewellery's always been kind of a hobby. I've always assemblaged things, made my own eclectic pieces... And then people started to like it. And then my business grew out of responding to a demand. You know, I didn't go the process of being like, this is my business plan. This is my concept. This is how I'm going to reach market, etc. It was very much from the space of I've made these things. Now I suddenly have orders from shops because I've been on a Mercedes-Benz Fashion Week runway. How the hell am I going to make these pieces? Because <laughs> I can't do them by myself. My domestic worker, her friend comes, joins me on the kitchen table then Pishlik starts to begin. It was responding to a demand. And then once you start to respond to the demand, you start to build a bit of operational expenses. Then you have an expectation to turn a certain amount of revenue to sustain that. And so the tumbleweed tumbleweed grows. <laughs> the process yeah. flows. <laughs> yeah, it flows. Yeah, Makes me think of a very good friend of mine. We started a little design company. I studied visual communication at Stellenbosch University. And from the outset, obviously, as a now ending your studies, you need to start making an income. And we started a little company called Creative Lounge. <laughs> and um, <laughs> we were operating from our lounge <laughs> and we were very creative. <laughs> and we started a website, Creative Lounge. And the only emails I think we ever received were people that asked for furniture. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> very, very creative. <laughs> so that didn't yeah. work so well. And um, yeah, I think responding to, like you said, like to a market is an important aspect for all creatives because you, you have an idea, but you don't know if it's going to work. You were trying three things <laughs> and one stuck and you went with that. So taking your... I just want to say your creative brainchild, the, these jewelry pieces that I've also heard people were buying off your neck. <laughs> so yeah. the demand was high. Yeah. How did taking a product and commercializing that creative brainchild, it's obviously developing here in the back of your mind. What could this be? What is this going to look like? Like envisioning that, but then also the pressure of making it commercially viable, like that process. Unwrap that a bit for me. What did that look like? We've been very lucky in the sense that we've had a very trusting and connected audience. And I think that's by virtue of the language of the brand and the intimacy of the brand from the get-go. So what that means is that our product development, and you call the commercialization of taking an idea to market, 
it's always been in relationship to our audience. And they've been very forgiving in product development. They've given us full-blown feedback loops on refinement. We've always done surveys throughout the brand. Because at the end of the day, what differentiates jewelry is that it's not an artwork that's independent. It exists and lives in relationship to people wearing it every day. So you've really got to be in touch with what those needs are. And it's been this continual feedback loop which has allowed us to refine and cater for our audience better. And also what's interesting is the longer you do something, the the more data you gather and the more you understand about what you do. And, you know, I've been quite specific of sticking to a restrained amount of materials. And that was quite conscious. And that's kind of an art practice thinking that I mentioned earlier around design thinking is using rope and sticking to rope has allowed us to deepen our understanding of that materiality and therefore we've been able to innovate with it. So it's kind of answering that in two folds. That's so well said. I'm curious to to just go back one step when you mentioned about the data and obviously you're getting various types of feedback. So you're getting the we love this, this is amazing, create more and then you get the maybe not <laughs> but I know in our business we have received negative feedback. First of all, let me ask, are you quite emotionally connected still to the brand? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, 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 and how do you deal with the negative feedback? What is your process as the, the founder of this and the creative director and the one that needs to take the brand further, take the creative direction further? Like, how do you process that? I think what you understand around the intimacy of making jewelry or I guess any items that people use and engage with is your customers are your stakeholders, they're not separate to me. They're part of me. So when they're giving me that feedback, they've got invested interest in making my brand better, which serves me as a creative director, serves me as a founder. So if I see their criticism as something separate, I can get hurt or offended. Obviously, my natural instinct, because I am so connected to it, I do get quite emotional, emotional, <laughs> emotional, um, <laughs> is that I've just got to create that differentiation. And also it's just being very clear around who are the stakeholders and who are the naysayers. You get those, I think it's Brene Brown always talks about that quote around... One of my favorite people ever. <laughs> yes, totally. Amazing. She's so inspiring. And she talks about either, you know, if people are in the ring with you mm. and they're on the court or their people are on the sidelines. And if I can sense that someone who's giving me feedback is because they're on the court with me and they yes. really want to play and do this, yeah. or if they're just sitting on the sidelines throwing tomatoes. And if that's yeah. them, I have a certain resilience towards that. Yeah, it's like the people who really, really love you, you know. Yeah. You don't really want to hear what they say, mm. but you know that they're yeah. hitting it in the right spots. <laughs> totally, totally, yeah. I'm curious to understand the process of scaling the business. Your product is very intensely hand-created and there's obviously a process through that. Like, how do you take something that cat made by hand, you start roping in extra people because obviously, you know... I didn't actually think about that. (laughs) Whatever, you've been been holding on to that little nugget and just waiting to drop it in. I feel like this might be a little bit of a theme. (laughs) But you were roping people in there. Yeah. How did you take that process forward in terms of like, now you need to scale this. Obviously, Mm. there's a massive demand. (laughs) Mm. And yeah, hand quality, quality control. I think that's a theme that's quite difficult for creators that are working by hand. I think there's an amazing 
aspect to that, and especially looking at Africa with employment and upskilling, which is so amazing. But then it also comes with struggles for the mm. entrepreneur. Yeah. How did that work? I think it's been an evolution. Having a business, it's a separate entity, but it's also part of you. And it's a constant dance with it. I also feel that it's never stagnant. So it's not like you have a problem, you find a solution, and then you go on to the next. It's a constant evolving thing. In the beginning, it was far looser. I had quite a few quality controls. I've had some bad, not bad employees, but employees that weren't the right fit. I've had retail partners that weren't, you know, it's been a constant kind of process. But one of the things is that from early on, I sought out people who knew better than me. I wasn't arrogant or proud in my grasp on what I did. And what's been a really amazing benefit or resource has been CEDA, for example, Small Enterprise Development Association, and their capacity to provide funding for us to bring in engineers, you know, efficiency wow. engineers. I've gone to all the talks I can go to. I constantly listen to podcasts. I engage with people who do this, who do production management, you know. And then on another aspect of it is I come from a pastry space and you're essentially making recipes. So how do I reproduce the same item with the same output regularly and consistently? And that is essentially a recipe. And then it was around thinking around that. And as we've kind of gone into the journey, we're about seven years into running the business. We now have a dedicated production manager, an inventory management tool with assembly tech you know, that integrates into our accounting system. Like there's a lot of kind of tech interventions that have allowed us to grow and have supported this back end development. There's so many aspects I want to touch on. <laughs> like my brain is going, da, 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 da. but I think what you're mentioning now is that this whole journey isn't linear, right? Mm -hmm. There's this, I want to say spaghetti movement of things happening in the back. And you obviously know what you're good at, but you're also reaching out to other professionals. Something I learned along the way is at some stage in your business to allow the business to actually enable it to grow and to really get to the place that it can be by you holding on to everything, you're actually holding back the business. Totally. And so you are reaching out to other people. Are there any aspects of your business that you outsource that's not done by an internal team? Or are you currently all internal? So our digital marketing, we have someone on a retainer. So it's outsourced. Our graphic design outsourced on a retainer by Rishka Detoy. I think you might know her. She's divine. And then also we outsource our accounting um, with our accounting consultants we outsource a human resource um, manager. I'm just thinking I'm going through each department. <laughs> yeah, so we do. There's a large portion of outsourcing. I think, though, what you do realize in the long term, though, is consultants are valuable to a point, but you start to see what your business requires full-time internally. And that's the constant shifting gears, is seeing what is a real value add being internalized and what kind of distant consultant offer that doesn't require such depth ingrained on the ground engagement. And also probably to be open to that constantly changing. Yeah. As totally. a business, it's like a human. Yeah. <laughs> it changes. <laughs> I think that's the fault of a lot of businesses who are struggling post-COVID, they call it PC <laughs> um, acronym, is struggling PC is that they have not had the flexibility to innovate. They've 
quite rigid in their models and are not willing to respond. Someone said, I don't know where I read it, or someone said to me, is they said, you must understand that fundamentally running a business, it's about solving problems. Yes. And if you just stop getting so stressed out when problems occur, if you understand <laughs> that that's your job description, that is <laughs> fundamentally what you do. You solve problems, whether it's through creative thinking, design thinking, yeah. strategic thinking. It's like you solve problems. And if you get comfortable in that zone, then you have the capacity to flow. I can't agree more. My husband and I constantly, I almost say currently, but constantly and currently, mm. <laughs> having this conversation about being comfortable with the uncomfortable. Yeah. And it took us, I think, 10 years to get to that topic <laughs> because totally. we were constantly fighting the uncomfortable, constantly fighting whenever something hit us hard or there's a change. And I think COVID is probably the biggest example of this. Mm. Just trying to like almost sit back as the victim and say like, you know, this is why I'm responding this way. But when you start looking at it in a different angle and you look, okay, actually, mm. I just need to be very fluid. <laughs> and I just need to be okay with things are never going to be okay. <laughs> and I think that's definitely the mindset that's pulled me through as an entrepreneur. You were just talking about your team and going through all the departments. So in your in-house team, how many people approximately do you have at the moment? We've got 14 people. And how many of them are actively making the jewelry by hand? We've got six people, but it can scale according to order size. So we've, we've baked in recently, maybe more tentatively so, a capacity to scale if required, but also not sitting operationally incredibly weighed down. Okay, so what does that mean? Is that meaning when orders come in, you can get in more people or how are you guys managing that? Because I think that's very interesting mm. from a business building point of view. Mm. Everything builds on top of one another. So for quite a long time now, our crafters or artisans or just teammates, <laughs> they have always had a base salary. And then whenever we produce more, have larger sets of orders, then it can scale. The base salary is something that they know we're committed to and that they will always earn because at the end of the day, Sustainability actually also means people to sustain themselves and also trust that they're going to earn a certain amount. But then we've got a little bit of a rolling scale of if we ramp up, they have the capacity to earn more. So that's same as what's happening now. Some of our um, teammates are working from home and we've organized a kind of a distribution. So it's a decentralized production model and we are dropping off materials, little packs and then collecting just because we want them to save on transport costs because they're living in peripheral spaces outside of the city center. But we also don't want to put them in a vulnerable space of public transport during this time. So it's us kind of reconfiguring our production model in order to be agile so that should we hop into another lockdown as winter approaches, we've already ironed out and really put some kind of gas on this model. So, so did this all come out of COVID, I'm assuming? We were already playing in the field of per unit costing for labor. So each piece, they get a remuneration for the crafting on it. And then they have a base level salary that's made up of a certain amount of production. And then we can scale it to more orders. So we've already had that model in existence, but now we're really seeing it sweat and work itself. And the decentralization from working from home has been something that we have been playing around with since COVID. Before we started recording, you mentioned that you got married, like literally yes. yeah. <laughs> just before COVID hit. And obviously with lockdown happening, so many changes, so many challenges, 
what happened in your brain? Like what was going through Kat's brain at that stage? And obviously not knowing what's going to happen, like a lot of uncertainties. Take us through that journey from initial stage five lockdown <laughs> to kind of where we now. What happened? So I just want, I think it's, it's important to mention because I think, you know, a founder or a creative director is quite emotionally involved. So whatever you're going through is going to mirror itself in your business. So I also lost my dad. He passed away in June last year. I'm sorry to hear. And also my apartment block was on fire. So we had, I had like three kind of, I had, I got married, COVID hits, apartment block on fire, and then my dad dies. So I had like quite a lot of trauma and not in a victim space, but I'm just laying those out there so you can understand the moving parts. Then, you know, processing this whole thing, I think I was forced to surrender in the sense of going, okay, I love using the word isness. This is what it is. You know, <laughs> isness. Like, isness. Like There's like, you know, you can't fight. There's certain things you can't fight. Mm. You can't fight death and you can't fight a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> we're trying to, but we're yeah. not winning. <laughs> yeah, like, not as a, an individual. You know, I can't be like, Cyril, <laughs> I must have access to my studio. <laughs> like, customs, <laughs> let me ship. <laughs> it's like, you've got to choose your wars. Yeah. So, what we did, my co-CEO and I, and this, she's a phenomenal woman called Tracy Chiappini Young, she joined my company the year before in June. We sat down and we said, okay, who are we going to be after this? Who is Pishlik in the landscape of COVID? And we decided two things. The first thing we decided is we've built brand equity. We've built a brand that people trust, that people are connected to, and we've built a team that we love and so our priority there is we want to protect our brand and we want to protect our team. So those are our two goals. Now to protect our brand, what does that mean? It means we cannot discount our product because we will essentially lose our market segments and our market hold and our brand equity. So, you know, where a lot of people went and did 60% off crash sales, we said no sales. What we rather do is we suck in, we get focused, we look at the data, we figure out who is our woman, what does she want, what is selling, what's moving, let's figure these elements out, and then we focus on telling our stories better, making our product better, and ensuring the safety and health and sustainability of our staff. So that was out. It wasn't about desperation. It wasn't about chaos. It was about getting very clear about who we wanted to be when we came out. And we feel kind of very proud that we've retrenched one person Wow, well done. During this period. And yes, we've accessed TERS, et cetera, and other kind of government-based benefits. And we've also had to do reduced hours, et cetera, but we've retained them. And then on a second level is we haven't done any sales and we're still here. You've got to choose which battles you want to win. I think it... it, it, it <laughs> it's very dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm it just is. Like, You've got to choose... <laughs> Braveheart over here, <laughs> just calm your boots. <laughs> no, but you know what? I love how passionate you are about this because you've obviously thought it through. And I think yeah. that it comes down to being very confident in what you do. You've obviously built up, like you've said, a brand that people love, but also that you love. That comes through very clearly. And I think being very focused, as you mentioned, to just distill what are the things that we really do have. And it, it actually like loops back to the conversation where you said, 
what tools do I have? And I think as an entrepreneur, you know, you don't start with everything. You don't start with like having the outsourced HR department and the legal team on call and the rest, you know. (laughs) But you start out with a few things. And you just basically said in crisis, I went back to that. I went back to my roots. I looked, what do I have in my pocket? What can I use? The other thing I took out of that is that you didn't move from a place of fear. Totally. I literally have goosebumps as I'm saying that because I think what the pandemic has done is it's either made you really fearful Mm. of where you're at, what the future holds, or it's made you incredibly thankful for what you have and grateful for what you've experienced. And like, how can you basically use that as a a tool in your pocket? Totally. I don't know if you've ever heard of The Course of Miracles. And Marion Williamson, you know, the famous quote that we all attribute to Nelson Mandela, it's not your darkness that you fear, it's your lightness. That actually was written by Marion Williamson in Return to Love. Did you walk past our uh, boardroom? No. (laughs) It's actually printed on the wall. Oh, wow. Crazy. (laughs) Serendipitous. Crazy. (laughs) That is literally my favorite quote. Well, literally. Well, I think that, and and they always talk about, you know, Course of Miracles is either you are walking towards fear or you're walking towards love. And those are the only two options we really have. And if you remove all the nuts and bolts of it, it's actually just those two simple decisions. And in that time, what I would say very crucially is you also realize that you need to work with people you adore. They might not have the same opinion as you. They might not fully be on board with every decision you make. But you've really got to create a team that is connected, supports you and is on the same vision. We had some moving around. So two people left the team and I've got two new people in the team. And there was some reconfiguring, but I feel so confident that I'm really with a team that I adore, that I trust, and I feel that we can grow with. You can like walk through the fire with them. 100%. (laughs) No, it's like, yeah, it's a real gift. No, it is. And I think with COVID, for me specifically also, my husband and I are both entrepreneurs and, you know, this took us home and we have a two-year-old and it was absolute madness. And we had to figure out a whole new rhythm because we were going to the office and all of a sudden we're at home and we need to reconfigure just like the home space. Mm-hmm. <laughs> at that stage, he was 14 months old. So that was quite, quite, Brave mama, yeah. quite a story, you know. But I looked at this and I, I thought there's so many parents out there that are all struggling with this new rhythm mm-hmm. and so many entrepreneurs that are struggling with new rhythms. But it all had to distill. We all had to go back to like, what is it that we have? Mm. COVID for me was also a realization of what do you allow in your life? And what don't you allow in your life? What do you actually say no to? I got into a rhythm of the businesses are flowing. You start connecting with people. There's always this thing that you have to grow everything. It's another Mm. topic my husband and I, we're talking about often this idea that when you start building a business, the first thing people ask you is like, how is this going to scale? How are you going to build it? And there's almost like a external pressure Mm. that you constantly have to grow. Mm. Every year you have to show more profits and more profits. And Mm. we're just talking about that, you know, like... What do you actually allow into your life? And do you actually have to allow more people and more people where at some stage, maybe you you don't need that much coming in so that you can actually give out more? I don't know if that is a, a theme for you, but for me, that was quite a big, let's say, theme during COVID. I want to jump to Pishalik, the world-renowned jewelry brand. I remember, I think it was... Where are we now? 2000, it feels like we lost a whole year. So I just have to do the math there. 2019, Ian and I went to New York and we walked into MoMA and I was looking at all the products and there, obviously, I saw the Pishalik brand 
And I was, on the one hand, so proud, and on the other hand, I almost didn't believe it. And I, I thought, why don't you believe that an African product could be in MoMA? So I want to go back to that MoMA moment for you. Like, how did that happen? How did you get your product there? You know, we've been very blessed in a way. A lot of people have come to us. So we stock MoMA, Tate Modern, um, we've done Bloomingdale's, we've done the BHV Marais, Selfridges, we've done some hard-hitting department stores and national museums. And a lot of people do come to, to us. And I think what that's about is very early on, I guess coming from maybe an arts background, is I saw the power of visual storytelling and how that is incredibly scalable from a way to access a global market. So sometimes I think as South African designers, we don't invest in those assets and that collateral. And thus we end up not being able to scale in the global markets because people can't actually see our things. I think from an early stage, we invested in that and therefore we became part on people's radar and then they came to us. And for me, coming from a fine arts background, it's very exciting for the brand to be a MoMA because it makes sense. It's and, incredible. And it's also like, yes, we've got a very strong African DNA, but also a lot of our pieces are a tribute to the craft heritage of feminist arts from the 70s. It's kind of a testament to a lot of textile artists. And so I think that tactile quality, the interesting play of colors, the rethinking of industrial material into something that is sacred or precious, these all speak to the art story and the art making process. And that's why I think they're very snug in a museum store space. You've been quite, I want to say lucky, but I'm going to use that word very um, <laughs> carefully. Mm. Do you believe in the idea that luck did play a part in the kind of PR and like your story being spread through different magazines and the media? Or was that quite intentional in your design of this brand? I think everything is around a convergence of different attributing factors. And so I think you have a combination of suddenly people getting interested in Africa as a design space you get this development of things such as the Biscuit Mill Market, where you started to see small producers having access to an international market without having to spend to be in like the waterfront. You have the watershed. So you start to have these places within our city that allowed us kind of young brands to have access to a global market. You have the development of social media um, and e-commerce. And so you see a convergence of all those things. Then you also like, you know, we've always said bold, joy, brave woman, and we've always had a very strong feminist for women attitude. And that's become kind of pop culture now. But we were doing this in 2012, 2013. But I think it's a convergence of that, a for woman brand based in Africa, baked in with a social impact story, being in Cape Town, which has become a cosmopolitan kind of global holiday destination. And woman-owned, and I think those all come together that they feel like a good story, which I guess could be luck, could be zeitgeist, who knows. Um, but yes, I think we were at a, a nice time to go into the market uh, because people were starting to share stories of Africa and put us on the map. Timing does play a huge role. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> yeah. With the global market being what it is currently, 
And with COVID, like, what is your feeling? I don't want to say what is your vision or what is your <laughs> prediction, but what is your feeling of what is this going to look like for South Africa being quite exposed to the idea that we currently don't have tourists here? And you were saying, you know, a lot of the smaller producers, we do have that access to global markets, but on our own ground, you know, they come here. What do you think the next year looks like? It's made two things very key. On one level, it's forced us not to be lazy. Because I think as South African brands, you know, specifically playing in the craft sector or being exposed in the tourist market, is you can become a little bit lazy just being like, oh, well, every season we do so well that we can carry ourselves over and et cetera, et cetera. And we can kind of, not necessarily us, but you can just reproduce the same sort of product because it sells, et cetera. And what it's actually said is like, hey, don't forget about your local audience. Like who are the women who are buying your stuff who live here? And so it's made me incredibly attuned and curious and interested to get to know our local audience. And then on another level, it's how do you tell stories to a global market that feel universal, but then also feel like they are from South Africa? So it's kind of twofold. And, and I, I come back to the survey thing that we do. I recently did a survey that we sent out. This blows my mind. It's 360 people the survey, which for me is quite a lot of people to actually spend time to go and fill out a damn survey. They, um, they obviously love you. <laughs> and they did it. And then they, you know, I asked for Pishlik memories. And some of the memories, I wanted to have it verbatim how they said it. And some of the things, you hear everything about what you mean to a brand and what's important. And some of the key things that kept on coming up was, and I think this is quite beautiful and it makes me quite emotional to think about it, is a lot of people saying that they are maybe like stuck in London or wherever they are and they say, Pishlik reminds me of home. And that's such a gift. And that gives people such nostalgia and such connection to the brand. So when they're buying the pieces, it really feels like they've got home with them. And in a time where people are so isolated, so disconnected from where they're from, we feel very empowered and honored to be the vehicle for that. I guess that's the key takeaway on this is that you've just got to be curious about what the person wants and needs who's buying your things. You don't just make things and send them out into the world. You've actually got to be in conversation with your buyer and that is your biggest stakeholder and that is actually where we should be looking now. So my prediction is you're not going to have macro communities, you're going to have micro communities and you're going to have brands that speak to micro communities. These huge kind of multinationals are going to be crumbling and falling and smaller niche groups are going to be emerging with brands that connect to them. And in order to be part of these micro communities, you've really got to have a deep understanding of the needs, the voice and the feelings of that community. So I think it's going to be intimate. It's going to be customers that are stakeholders within your pieces. It's going to be conversational and it's going to be co-creating that what you make is in co-creation with your audience. And that is actually what social media allowed us to do, right? Mm. It's that constant loop of feedback where the whole idea behind social media is to be social. And it's not just media. Like if you look at traditional media, it's very much the brand telling you what to think and what to do and what to buy, where you've really embraced that as a brand to be in connection with your followers, with your audience, with your buyers, and to hear what they're saying. So... Moving forward with the design and what is coming for Pishilik, obviously you don't want to like spill the beans, but just maybe give us some insight on how do you design? Now you've obviously got a team. Are you the, the person creating and then showing them or is there some community designing process happening in the background? So I'm the creative director. 
a collection arises for me first as an emotional response. So I feel that there's a feeling, that there's a story that needs to be told. <laughs> Very dramatic. Um, but there's a story that needs to be told. And it kind of really does show up for me in my dreams, in the music I'm listening to, in the books that I seem to be attracting and conversations I seem to be having. And then I start to gather a bunch of materials and I start to play, often in a lot of chaos. And from that chaos, I kind of distill it down to a collection. And in that process, my co-CEO and the commercial director, she's given me a bit of a collection architecture to tell me of like how many pieces at this point that we need to bring out that speaks to this kind of market segment, etc. So I have a bit of restraint and a bit of kind of scaffolding to the collection. And then from there, I take those samples to my crafting and my production team. And they have intelligence in making. They really do. You know, if you're making something day in and day out, you understand elements of that materiality that I won't. And there's where the collaborative process comes in, is in refining the product, maybe saying this ain't going to work because of A, B and C. And then we distill, distill until we release a collection. When I was younger, I would release these very vast collections, you know, like <laughs> 23 SKUs. And now I've honed it all the way down. And that's been really about how do we better understand our pieces? How do we refine the quality and the production? And how can we better serve these items in people's wardrobes and in their lives? Has that process been quite informed by bringing in the commercial director? Absolutely. Or? Absolutely. Like... She's got a lot of experience in the industry. She's incredibly smart and disciplined. And I just have to say, like, if you've been an independent founder, it's a very lonely journey. And to have someone who I deeply respect and whose skill set are so complementary to mine, but also there's some nice overlaps, it's made this period so explorative and actually so challenging. I feel challenged by it in a juicy way. Yeah, but I'm sure you've, you get that bounce back from totally. her. Because all of a sudden, like you said, I know my dad always mentioned the corner office is the lonely office. Yes. You know, and that I found many times in trying to build a business or starting a brand is you always feel quite lonely in your thought process and you don't always know who you can talk to. Where I'm sure by bringing that person into the team, um, that's really changed the way you work. I always talk to the term weight-bearing skills. So when people ask about like, what is a leader? A leader has a capacity to hold weight. That's what we really do is, you know, our weight-bearing capacity. And when you find someone who you respect and feel is on the same weight-bearing capacity as you, the load feels a little bit lighter. And I think that's where you see people have burnout, you know, or just actually fully overwhelmed by the weight of their businesses, it's not just the actual day-to-day -day runnings of it, it's also the stress of knowing how much you need to bring in every month to keep the thing running and all that weight-bearing. But to have someone in partnership is you can go, okay, cool, can you carry this for two seconds? I've got to go to my dad's funeral. And not feeling I have to be sitting while I'm at the funeral handling things. It's such a beautiful dance in partnership and I would really encourage anyone to do that if they find, I wouldn't say necessarily it's easy founding a company in partnership because you can potentially see a lot of breakups there, but finding someone to come into your business and whether they've got an equity within the business of it or whether they're just sitting at a position where they've got a profit share, it's just someone who is invested, got their knuckles in the game and are really there to support and share it with you. Definitely a dance. I think yeah. that's a beautiful picture. It needs to be in in sync. Yeah. You know, the 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 dot. 
Okay, let me just hold it there. <laughs> Before I start <laughs> trying to draw pictures here. That doesn't but, make but, it's, sense. But, but sometimes you can be out of sync. And sometimes yes. even with a partnership, you can coming back to the analogy of the dancing, <laughs> is you can be knocking feet, you know, or trying yes. to go in the same direction and trying to both lead. And sometimes it's feeling that you can trust that person enough to go, okay, now this part of the song, the next few notes, you know, you're going to lead here and then we can swap over and I'm going to lead here. And that you trust them enough before I've given someone lead in areas where I didn't trust them. And that made me feel vulnerable and insecure. But finding someone you trust where you can hand over the lead is really powerful. And I think to find a partner to know where you have your weaknesses and they fall, that is probably the best combination. I'm very curious to know, tell me more about the product that never saw the day of light. <laughs> oh, wow. Are you talking about the ugly, the ugly, the ugly <laughs> items that, um, <laughs> that stay in the studio? Do you have some stash somewhere that you <laughs> oh. <laughs> too um, scared to throw out, but also oh. never want people to see? <laughs> so I'll, I'll tell you it's two things. So I always say two things. You say one thing and I'm always like, two things. <laughs> Maybe it's something about our personalities. But one of the things is like you get pieces where I've done collaborations with people or commissions by people. And whenever I don't trust my gut and I get too dominated by the brief, I've made some really disgusting things. And those I feel they're like, oh, you know, like a little thorn in my foot kind of feeling. But then I've got other pieces which I kind of am more accepting and loving because, you know, they're part of the process. I see them as not like final products, but more like in transition because I do cast the net wide when I'm in a creative space. I like to be off my emails. I like to have a little zone. I like to be playing music. I like to be in often weird outfits with like a top knot, even though I look really weird with a top knot. Oh, please, can we see some photos? Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, it's, it's shocking. Especially when sometimes people would come into the studio and I'd be in that process. Um, some Instagram reel. Uh, yeah, oh my gosh. <laughs> inspiration right I know, there. I should, I should, actually, I should. I totally should bring people to that space. It's scary. Um, and I feel often very... <laughs> only like, for the VIP club. Yeah, exactly, for the VIP members only. I do feel very anxious in that space. I am a horrible wife. My husband's just like, oh my gosh, please, enough. I don't want you in my space because I'm moany. Like I just go into a very self-centered zone and I could be making a lot of ugly things and it could be so frustrating. But what's so amazing in the ugliness, <laughs> the wading <laughs> through that darkness is there's a tipping point. So I, I can actually see the theme is like there's an evening I'll be like, oh, I'm making only ugly things. I will never make a nice thing again. I'm a failure. And then like, I'll go through all that. Uh, so you also go through that. Oh, like, oh my gosh. You're not just like always perfect and uh, got no. it all together. <laughs> Hell no. And then I'll like have some wine and I'll like just be very like soppy and I'll create a playlist during the collection and then I'll play the music and be very angsty, maybe like 13 years old. That's <laughs> my persona. And then Often the next morning, I just leave it. I always walk away. That's the skill. Is whenever you're in a mushy, you know, they call them swamplands in Jungian psychology, is when you're in the swamplands, don't just, you can sit, 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 but there's sometimes time just to step a little away. And then I return there back to the work. With perspective. With perspective. <laughs> and often by the time I walk in, I know exactly what needs to be done. And I shop, 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 and I find, you know, the pieces that need to be made. You haven't explained what the ugly pieces look okay, like. So, no, no, okay, okay, let's get back there. Let's get back there. Um, I, I feel like you you kind of, 
like really danced around that no, question. I did, I, did, I did dance around that. Maybe I was, I was setting the stage. We, we do know that Pitchelik's all about the perfectly pretty product. No, 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 no. I was, but, I guess, but, but observant there. <laughs> I did, I was but, like, I, but I skirting, do want skirting. to know, I do want to know the not branded Pitchelik product. Okay, what does that look like? Okay, so I did a disgusting, it's so embarrassing. I actually feel levels of shame about it, but it's great to tell. Is this quite cool brand or whatever, send me this mood board. And they were like, okay, cool. So, and, and, and it was all these like trance, what's that? Uh, iridescence. And so I saw this and I was like, not necessarily my vibe. Like if you know my collections, I'm quite particular on my, my subtle colors or like even going, they're quite specific. Subtle colors. Well, not subtle, but like <laughs> dysmorphia. No, but it's definitely not iridescent. I'm not iridescent. Like I don't think I've ever made anything with purple. Let's be honest. So suddenly they're giving me this color palette and then I was like, I don't know where to go. So I ended up buying these like weird shelly purpley things and I made the most disgusting mermaid jewelry. Like <laughs> if I tell you, it looked like a craft project of an 11-year-old girl and it was just disgusting. Purpley and like iridescent and like I sent them images and they were like, um... No, <laughs> not really what we were going for. <laughs> like, we didn't know that that's where you would take it kind of, you know, yo. Um, and I've also made... <laughs> so, so I'm curious, did you get the job or did what they just fire you right there? <laughs> they just kind of like very, not gently, quite clear. We were like, mm, we'll contact you, don't contact yeah, us. Yeah, like not, not, not so much. Um, and I think that that also comes down to personal confidence. There's two things again. Is <laughs> Surprise. The first thing is always... Trust your gut in your process and sometimes don't show people so early on in the process. Because sometimes we feel like we need to show people where we're at in the process. And then what happens is their voices become too involved in your creative process. Oh, that's good. Sometimes you need to actually like, I go into my little kind of a hermit and I pull back and I make, 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 but I can't go and like go to my team and be like, oh, this is what I'm making because suddenly all their opinions you know, their constructive opinions and their well-intentioned opinions, they start to become noise. And I actually don't do the beautiful full loop that I need to do creatively. It actually pulls you into different directions, correct. right? I get lost. And so it's really important to kind of create that space. Kat, it was lovely to have you on yeah. Gohanda Edits and to get so much insight into your brand, what you've done, and just all the best with everything that's coming up. Thanks for sharing and being so open and being so vulnerable with your storytelling. I'm inspired once again. I wish we could continue this for two hours. <laughs> no, no, it went fast. Thank yeah. you so much. Thanks so I much for it. being here. If you're enjoying Behind the Edit, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen and don't forget to leave a review. For those who are curious, Behind the Edit is part of a larger drive to uplift our local design industry and sister company to The Pretty Blog. If you'd like to follow what we're building, please visit thelocaledit.com and sign up to stay in the know. And as always, please keep spreading the local love on social media by following and tagging The Local Edit on Instagram. I'm Christine Mankies and you're listening to Behind the Edit.